singing that great song that we just finished about praying that Jesus would come. And I suppose in many ways, the idea that he will come back, the idea also that he will come and join us and, and speak to us and meet us and encounter us this morning. And as we read God's word and as we try to understand um, what God would be saying to us, that is our prayer this morning that Jesus would come and speak. Let's bow together. Father God, as we open your word, we pray for you to come. We know you're already here, but we need you to come into our hearts and our lives. We need you to come and speak to us. We need you to be whispering in our ear, this is for you. Father God, we come to worship you this morning because we love you so much. Father, we have struggled to show that adequately. We have struggled to live up to your expectations of us. We've struggled to live up to our own. But Father, we thank you, as we sang earlier, for the death of Jesus Christ, that through his life, death, and resurrection, we can have this relationship with you. That's based not on the law and what we do, but based on what you have done for us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have come and that you are coming again. And Father, we pray as we read your word and as we seek to understand, we pray, O oh God, that you would indeed speak through your spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning we move into the part of Exodus that if you read through the Bible in a year, uh, this is where you're probably going to bog down. Up until now, the story has been pretty exciting. There's been all kinds of stuff. But now we get to the law. We get to this um, last half of the book of Exodus, which becomes um, confusing and repetitive, if I can put it that way, for many of us. And uh, we need to hear God in doing that. After um, God leads the people of Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea and to the Mount Sinai where he gives them the Ten Commandments, which we looked at last week, he then goes on to give them other commandments and he goes on to give them uh, other instructions. And in Exodus 23, verse 6 to 13 this morning, he says, Do not deny justice to your poor people in their lawsuits. Have nothing to do with a false charge, and do not put an innocent or honest person to death, for I will not acquit the guilty. And do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds those who see and twists the words of the righteous. And don't oppress an alien, for you yourselves know how it feels to be aliens, because you were aliens in Egypt. And for six years you are to sow your fields and harvest the crops, but during the seventh year let the land lie unplowed and unused. Then the poor among your people may get food from it, and the wild animals may eat what they leave. Do the same with your vineyard and your olive groves. Six days do your work, but on the seventh day do not work, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, the slave born in your household, and the alien as well may be refreshed. Be careful to do everything I have said to you, and do not invoke the names of other gods, and do not let them be heard on your lips." This morning as we come into that, the question comes this morning, what do we do with this part of Exodus? What do we do with this part of the Bible, in fact, 
where God gives a whole bunch of laws, and some of them are very um, precise, and some of them seem to be totally irrelevant to our situation. And the question comes, what do we do with this part of the Old Testament? I mean, as I was saying, until now, the Bible's been this great story. We've had Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, all these things you remember if you went to Sunday school. We've had Moses and Pharaoh and plagues in the Red Sea and grumbling in the desert. We've even had the Ten Commandments. But now, for about 45 chapters of the Bible, through the rest of Exodus and all of Leviticus, we're going to get detailed rules. Rules about living, how to build a tabernacle, you know, this tent temple. Then we'll hit numbers and we'll get a break from the law, but all we'll get is 10 chapters of census data. And then the rest of numbers is actually pretty exciting. It's all the stories of the wilderness wanderings, all the stories you sort of might remember if you remember stories about um, Israel in the desert. They're actually in the book of Numbers. But then comes the book of Deuteronomy, and Deuteronomy is Moses' three final sermons before he dies. And all he does is recapitulate all the stuff that you skipped to get to there. And then Joshua starts. And Joshua, you know, once again, we're back in the land of story and we're back in the land of Joshua leading the people into the land of Israel and all the battles and all the man stuff. And it's just a really good book. But what do we do with these chapters of Exodus that most of us would love to skip over? Why should I care about laws? Why should I care about rules about building a tabernacle? Well, we'll talk about the tabernacle next week. But today, I just want to ask one question and try and answer it. And that question is, why should I care about the laws in the Old Testament? Do they apply to me or don't they? And so this morning, let's take a look at that. So, in the New Testament, we read pretty negative things about the law in a lot of places. Uh, it seems that Paul didn't like the law that much, if you read him very quickly. Second Corinthians, he said, he has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And then he says in Romans, we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then he says, in also in Romans, a chapter later, it was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. And we've been singing about that already this morning. And so the, the question comes, well, what do we do with the law? I mean, if, if the New Testament guys didn't seem to like it, why don't we just sort of rip those pages out of our Bible and it would be a lot easier to read through in a year? Well, the place of the law is a fairly complicated thing. We're not going to do it all today. Um, but after uh, Easter, we're going to look at the book of Galatians. And the book of Galatians actually answers that question. In fact, it was written by Paul to this church in Galatia who were struggling with this exact question, what do we do with the law? So we're going to get a little bit more detail about that. But the question comes, what do we do with this? And the first thing I want to suggest is simply this, that Paul was not trying to get rid of the Old Testament law entirely. What he was trying to do is deal with people who misunderstood the law and what the law was, why it was given. And he was trying to explain what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but fulfill them. Reese asked us this morning, are you ready for this this morning? I know it's, a, it's been an early morning. It's been a cold morning, but you're all here. My morning started perfectly. I uh, got up. I had breakfast. I came down to the church. So I got here. I realized I forgot my laptop, which I always bring because I'm never 100% certain that everything will go the way it is. I walked into my office, and there was some stuff there. I tried to tie it up a little bit, and I picked up some paper. I thought, oh, this needs to be shredded. I walked to the shredder, and I put it in, and it went in about this far when I realized that I put my sermon in <laughs> and not the other paper. It could be prophetic. <laughs> but then, luckily, I live in the parish, and I drove home, got my laptop, came down, reprinted it, and did all that kind of stuff. So if you've had a hard morning, you know, you're not alone. And maybe you've come here and you said, well, I'm not sure about this law stuff. You know, it would have been a lot more fun to have something more interesting. But let's see if we can figure out where we're going on this thing. In the New Testament, it seems like there's this idea that the law isn't as important as it could be. But in the Old Testament, it's a little bit different. So, when I say law, what do you think of? Um, if you're a lawyer this morning, we have lawyers in our church, and we have police in our church, it, maybe the criminal code is what comes to mind. If uh, you're an accountant this morning, maybe it's the tax law. If you're a builder or inspector or something like that, maybe it's the building code. But what those all have in common is that they are prescriptive laws. In other words, they are laws that are written to be obeyed, for which there is a penalty if you don't, and they expect obedience. Is that fair? And that's what a prescriptive law is. It, pros it proscribes something. It says you need to do this. And you say, well, yeah, of course, that's the purpose of law. That's what law means. It's tells you what to do and tells you what will happen if you don't do it. Tells it to you in detail. And you're right. That is what the law is in 21st century Canada. But in 2000 BC Israel, in the ancient Near East of Moses' time, they did not understand the law that way. It's the challenge of trying to put ourselves back into another culture. It's the challenge of trying to understand a biblical text in the context in which it was written. Because rather than prescriptive, Moses and the people of Israel would have understood this descriptively. In other words, the law was not given so much to be obeyed as understood. In fact, there's really no Hebrew word that would describe law the way we just described it as this prescriptive thing that's written to be obeyed for which there's penalties. The word law in Hebrew is Torah. Most of you would know that. And it's sometimes maybe better just to keep that. Because <laughs> it, it's a different understanding of law. And in that, they have this whole range of other words. You know, they have words 
like decrees, words, statutes, precepts. And we've all translated them into our context. But the reality is what the Old Testament law did was describe who God was and what life with him should be like. But it's really trying to describe a culture, not give specific rules that if X happens, then you do Y. I mean, if you look at the laws in the Old Testament, one of the things about our criminal code is, is that whatever happens, there should be a law that covers it, in some sense of that. But if you read the Old Testament laws, there's big gaps. You could drive a truck through most of those laws. They're more like model verdicts. They're more like uh, sample things than a complete code to cover any eventuality. And even when there is a concrete example, it's not necessarily there to be followed. It's a principle. And it's why sometimes the Bible seems confusing. I mean, if you read through Deuteronomy, you know, you get to this part where it says, no Moabite can come into the land of Israel and become part of the people. And then you read ahead to the book of Ruth, and you discover that Ruth was a Moabite. And she comes in, and not only does she come in, but she becomes the great-grandmother of David the king. And this whole idea that the law describes what is important, that the law describes who God is and who he's not. And here's the contrast, I guess. If prescriptive laws expect obedience then descriptive laws expect understanding. If prescriptive laws tell us what to do, descriptive laws give us wisdom to know what to do. It's not unfamiliar to us. I know it's a little bit of a paradigm shift, but um, remember an algebra class in high school? Uh, two trains leave two stations at the same time. The stations are 50 kilometers apart. The trains leave at 2 p.m. One train travels at 30 kilometers an hour. One train travels at 2 kilometers an hour. They are coming towards each other on a single track. At what time will you call for the accident people to come when the trains meet? You know, those are the kind of things. And, and what's the purpose of that? Well, it is not to give students wisdom in how to schedule trains. Not to teach how to operate a railroad, it's simply to teach principles that can be applied to any other event in life, any similar event. It is wisdom for life, not wisdom for operating a railroad. And the laws that we read about in the Old Testament, when we begin to understand them through that framework, that they're not prescriptive, but they're written to be understood, that they're not to be obeyed precisely in every situation and every circumstance. But they are descriptive statements that tell us what is right and wrong and how that could go in any situation. And when you understand that, you begin to understand Psalm 119. You remember Psalm 119, if you've ever tried to read through the Bible. Uh, this psalm seems to go on forever. It's got 22 verses because every verse starts with a letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet because they don't have vowels. So there's eight verses that all start with Aleph and then Beit and Gimel and Dalit. And, you know, they go through the whole alphabet. So it makes 176 verses. And every one of those verses 
has the word law in it somewhere, or a word for law. And the psalmist just spends the whole time talking about how he loves the law, how he loves to meditate on it, how he loves to use it to find wisdom, how that's the favorite thing to do in the evening is just to reflect on the law. Now, probably only our accountants do that with the tax law. But, you know, most of us, even the most ardent, you know, aren't reflecting on the law that much. But here's the psalmist. This is from uh, verses 97 and on in Psalm 119. And I highlighted the words for law. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I've kept my feet from every evil path so that I may obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And I gain understanding from your precepts because I hate every wrong. And every verse has a word for the law. It could be word, law, precept, decree. And he spends 176 verses just saying how much he loves the law. But what's interesting is what he does with it. So let's take a look at what he reflects on. Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are with me, and they make me wise, wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path, so that I may obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words, sweeter than honey. And I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. And what the psalmist is doing there is he's saying, I don't see this law as prescriptive. Oh yeah, if this happens, I have to do this. Oh yeah, if this happens, I have to do that. What he sees in the law is a description of God. What he sees in the law is a description of who God is. He sees God's holiness. He sees God's love. He sees God's majesty. He sees God's power. And he meditates on this. And when we begin to read these passages in Exodus and Leviticus, not from the idea of, okay, what do I have to do with this? But what is this telling me about God? What is this telling me about what the world is like? What is this telling me about what God desires? then it becomes a different kind of exercise for us. And when we do that, we discover there's probably three categories to the law. Now, it's a bit fuzzy on the edges, but, you know, and the Old Testament scholars kind of drill down on this because that's how they make their living. But at the heart of it is the simple statement I make all the time about the Bible, that the Bible was written for us, but it was not written to us. The Bible was written for us, and it has tremendous value for us, but it wasn't written to us, so we have to understand what it meant to the people to whom it was written. 
So we need to understand the difference between prescriptive and descriptive. But in the Bible, we also have to understand the difference between what is what is uh, been fulfilled in Jesus in different ways. And the first one is this whole idea of ceremonial law. There's this big chunk of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy that is about building the temple or the tabernacle. It's about sacrifice, about priests, about Passover. It's about what you can eat and what you can't eat. It's about getting circumcised. Over the years that I've been here, we've quit sacrificing animals at Westview, so uh, that part doesn't really apply to us, and we don't seem to have any trouble eating bacon here, so uh, that doesn't seem to apply to us either. So the question comes, what do we do with that part of the law? And what we realize is it's been fulfilled in Jesus. Corinthians says, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And Paul sees, the, uh, the whole New Testament sees Jesus coming as a fulfillment of that whole Passover. In fact, that's why his death is at Passover, because he is this Passover lamb, the fulfillment of all that. Now, the big debate in the earliest church in the book of Acts was this big debate about what is the place of these ceremonial aspects? Have they all been fulfilled in Jesus, or do we still need to eat kosher? Do we still need to be circumcised? And we'll see in the book of Galatians, that's what that book is all about, is there's these people coming in to tell the, the new Christians in Galatia, who were Greeks, not Jews, that they have to get circumcised, that they have to follow the Jewish laws, and they have to do all these things. And sometimes we get questioning, well, should I be doing this stuff? Should I be fulfilling this? And we begin to realize that that has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The second one, the page goes a different direction. The second one is uh, the civil laws. There are laws about society, laws about property, laws about murder, about organizing a society. And again, they don't apply to us directly because we don't live in a 2,000-year-old society where God is the head of it but they contain wisdom for how we wrestle through being a society. The big debate in Jesus' day revolved around this. You know, they kept coming to Jesus and saying, now what do we do with Caesar when, when we're being ruled by the Romans? How do we live out this? Because everything that we were given as a law says this is what you do when you're in control, but we're not in control. So we have to use money that's got images on it. We have to pay taxes to a foreign government. We get um, caught up in their wars and we get drafted into their army. How do we live in a civil society? And the Sadducees answered it one way and the Pharisees answered it another way and the Zealots answered it another way, but they were all wrestling with this thing. And what does it mean for the law that times have changed? And then the third one was the moral law. And if the ceremonial and civil laws apply to us very indirectly, what about this third category of laws, the moral? What do we do with laws about family and sexuality and the like? And I want to suggest to you that's where the first half of the sermon helps us, is that they apply to us descriptively, but not prescriptively. In fact, I would suggest that's what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus comes in and talks about all these things, but he talks about them in a fresh way. He says, you have heard what I say to you. 
And the Sermon on the Mount is not a list of rules to be obeyed. It's a description of what a godly person looks like. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be filled. Not a command, just a statement. It's what we're to be like. We're to be people who hunger and thirst. It's descriptive, not prescriptive. It draws us towards an ideal. In fact, the ideal is it describes who Jesus was. If you want to know who Jesus was, read the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about himself. And then he's saying, and because you are now part of the family, this is the culture of our family. And if it's a description of him, it gives us the wisdom to know that that also becomes a description of us. When we read it as a description, we begin to begin to get to be at peace, perhaps, with one of the biggest challenges that many of us feel with the law is that it, it doesn't describe an ideal society. I always listen to something when I'm driving. I just can't drive without doing that. And uh, Yale University has a lot of their courses online, and I've been listening to one on the Civil War. And it's all about, uh, it's in three parts. The first part is why the Civil War happened. The second part was what happened in the Civil War. And the third part is what happened after the Civil War. And the first part is this uh, quite lengthy section on all the stuff that was leading up to that, what it was about. And, you know, as uh, the prophet Yale says, it was about slavery. <laughs> if you tour the southern uh, states and you tour the battlefields, they will tell you it's about state rights, which it was too, but primarily it was about slavery. And uh, the challenge was you can find slavery in the Old Testament. <laughs> you know, it just says to be kind to them. It doesn't say to get rid of them. And you go, well, how can you have a law from God that goes against everything we believe to be right today? And the reality was that God was not setting out an ideal society, that this is what the ideal should be. That comes much more in the Sermon on the Mount. In the Old Testament, it was taking into account the reality of what society was like. God was beginning to move them. If you read the laws of the Old Testament, they're very similar to the laws of Hammurabi from the Babylonians and other ones. But you read them, you realize that God is moving people. He's got them on a journey. And through the prophets of Isaiah and the minor prophets of Amos especially, and some of these, he's going to move them into social justice until the time when Jesus comes and he begins to continues that movement. And the purpose of the law was not to set out, this is the ideal for all time. It was, this is how we can start to redeem what is. But it's going to be a process. And it's going to come to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. When Jesus dies on the cross. And Jesus comes to show us what God was like. And the Sermon on the Mount becomes that ideal. So we've got to be very careful how we look at that Old Testament. Because it's part of the process, but it's not the end of the process. Which we will find in the Sermon on the Mount. So all that to say, what do we do with it? Well, you know, so what? We always try to end with that question. What do we do with the law in the Old Testament? Well, the first thing is we don't just rip it out of our Bibles and throw it away. 
And if you're reading through your Bible, you don't just skip those 40-some chapters. Jesus said, don't think I've come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill them. But it is to say that wise living can't be legislated. It's a matter of applying principles of wisdom. So when our kids were growing up, you know, I come back to this all the time, because there's this idea that um, I think that there's a, a progression. You know, it's one of the things we say is you start as a spiritual infant, you become a spiritual young adult, you become a parent, you become a grandparent. When our kids were growing up, we had lots of rules in our house, you know, like everybody does. But as teenagers, we had less and less rules. We, we figured out the important ones. We, we didn't take rules less seriously. We just had less of them because we trusted them on some of the other ones. When both our girls graduated from high school, they lived at home while they went to university for at least a little while. And when they got to that point, we had no more rules for them. In high school, most of the rules were around curfews and driving and stuff like that. But when they graduated, we had no more rules. We had created a culture where there were expectations and where they knew what the culture was. And we expected them to be part of that culture. We had a descriptive relationship where we had given wisdom for making decisions where there were ways that our family did things. And they didn't 100% have to follow that. But our goal had been make them mature enough to create their own culture as adults so that now that they're both married and living in families, they would have the wisdom to know how to create the culture that they wanted for theirs. It's what we learned in dog obedience school. I was talking to someone about this yesterday. But, you know, dog obedience school, we had this demon-possessed dog that, you know, you've heard all about if you've been around the church for any length of time. And it went through three sets of dog obedience lessons because it couldn't learn. Uh, I later learned that dog obedience lessons are for the owner, not the dog. But regardless, um, it, it just, yeah, it, you know, the two biggest things it couldn't do is it wouldn't come back if you let it go. And it couldn't walk at heel. Um, and so we're training, trying how to do that. Um, the only way we get the dog to go, if we let it run in the park, and I said this before, but yeah, um, it was very soft-hearted, hard-headed, but soft-hearted. And what Dawn would do is she would lie on the ground and pretend to cry. And the dog would come and lick her face, and I'd grab it by the neck. And literally, that is the only way in a public park we'd ever get that dog back again. Um, and that's what we learned in three sets of dog obedience lessons. But anyway, the thing we learned about walking at heel was the one that we applied with our kids. And uh, I don't know if it made them better kids, but it made them much nicer dogs. Anyway, um, if your dog's walking at heel and you have the, the leash and the leash is always tight, what you're teaching the dog is not to walk at heel. You're teaching the dog to walk at the end of a tight leash. And the means, what that means is no matter how long that leash is, the dog will always walk at the end of it. But if there's slack in the leash then the dog learns to walk at heel. And I think that's the difference between prescriptive and descriptive. Prescriptive is always we're walking at the end of the law. And if there isn't a law that covers this, then we think we're free. 
Descriptive is this idea we're learning wisdom. It's not just what has to be obeyed. It's what's wisdom for living. And that wisdom is that slack in the, in the leash, that slack in the chain, where the dog learns to walk at heel. And I think this is what God is trying to teach us. As we come and we read these, these things and we say, well, this is prescriptive, and I don't know that this applies to me. You know, um, I can't have two different kinds of cloth, two kinds of thread in my cloth. You know, I can't have mixed stuff. Well, when you go back and read that, the only place you find that was the priest's robes had that. So it had implications and applications. But, you know, they're not rules to be applied as much as kind of descriptive wisdom to learn from. Maybe another lens is just this lens of health. You know, we all recognize the idea of good health, you know, especially in this day and age, right? And we pursue it aggressively, but it's just difficult to provide a comprehensive list of specific guidelines. Um, doctors don't legislate how everyone ought to eat, but they do provide us with knowledge about what we can do if we decide that health is something we want. And I just think that's a little bit of what God does. He doesn't tell us every detail of our lives. That would be treating us as children. What he does is he's trying to help us mature so that we have an idea of the culture. We have an idea of who God is. And if we know who our father is and we know what the culture of the family is, then we have the wisdom to know. And it doesn't mean that there's, there's no rules. Each of us has rebelled against God by creating our own definition of right and wrong. For Adam and Eve, it was, I'm going to eat the apple because God does not know better than I do. For us, it might be lying is the best thing to do in this situation. Or um, it's not wrong to hate my brother because you would too if you only knew him as well as I did. Or we want to control our lives because God's way is too difficult. But whatever it is, we've walked away from God and his right to define the culture, to, describe, to define those descriptive laws. And God calls that sin. Sins, plural, are specific acts. But sin is this idea that we don't need the law. We can just skip all these chapters. We can live the way we want to be and we can be our own God. And Jesus came to pay the penalty for exactly that attitude. He came to die for that sin, to bring us back to God's family. And then God has given us his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit helps us to understand the wisdom in the law. He helps us to live in this new family in a way that pleases God, allows us to live up to our identity and our promise. And he gives us his word. He gives us this part of his word specifically to be a source of that wisdom that the Holy Spirit then applies in our lives. And then our relationship with God is restored. And his spirit helps us interpret it to God. And I think Psalm 119 probably sums it up. And if anybody's here from Pioneer Club days, you know this one. Your word, your law, your Torah, is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. It's not a rule book. It's a light.
It's wisdom. It's direction. It's descriptive to let us know who God is, how to live. And the law just simply is this whole idea that, you know, what would it look like? Well, we read some stuff about the Sabbath. So today's Sunday for all of us. Some of us, it's our Sabbath. For some of us who work, we take another day off. But, um, you know, we can overdo the Sabbath. I had friends who grew up in Scotland and that Scottish Presbyterian thing. They said, we weren't allowed to read novels. We weren't allowed to do anything. All we were allowed to do, we weren't allowed to play. All we, all we could do is read the Bible. And uh, Don had a friend one time. She grew up in a, another uh, tradition, I won't say, but uh, very strongly uh, Sabbatarian, very strongly on Sunday. And we were over at their place on a Saturday night. And they said, oh, we got to run out after you guys leave and fill up our car with gas because we're going to my dad's and we can't fill up our car on a Sunday. Now, she was living with her boyfriend. That didn't seem to matter. <laughs> but they were not going to fill up their car with gas on a Sunday. We can overdo the rules. Or we can say the law doesn't apply to us in any way. And then we start working on Sunday. And then we don't focus on God very much on Sunday. And then we start doing all our household chores on Sunday. And where Sunday, where the Sabbath was designed to be life-giving where everybody got a chance to just unwind a little bit and to have some time to focus on God, it's just become an even busier day. It's just a day of busy stuff for us. And what God is saying to us is somewhere in there, there's a middle ground. That he's given us not prescriptive stuff, that there's all these rules, what can I do and not do on Sunday? But there are principles and wisdom that's in there. That says, you know, you're designed to have rest. You're designed to, to have times of stress and times of relaxation and times of stress and times of relaxation. You're designed to work and then rest and work and then rest. Your heartbeat just tells you that there's always this up and down. And as we see the law through that lens of description, as we see the law as wisdom that is given to us, not that we obey it to the letter, but not that we ignore it. But as we live it in its fullness, then I think Jesus' comment comes true. I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. I have come that you might have life and you might have it to the full. When we have the law in its right place. Father God, this morning we just pray that you would help us to understand Help us to understand your word. Help us to understand your intention for us. And we thank you, Lord, that you don't leave us directionless. You don't leave us to make up our own morality and our own rules and our own laws. You give us direction. But we also thank you that you have given us free will. You've given us a level of independence and a level of choice. That you've given us your wisdom that helps us to understand How you made us. Helps us understand who you are. Helps us understand in a way that we can have life in abundance while bringing glory to you. We thank you, God, for your law, for your promises.
And we thank you for your spirit who gives us wisdom to know what to do with it. This morning, if we can pray with you, we have elders who would love to do that. Maybe this morning you just need to pause for a moment or two and just reflect and just allow God to apply his word to us, to speak to us this morning. And as always, we have coffee and fellowship. May God bless you in this week.